Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalog of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Lots to talk about today, as indeed there always is. Uh, you've got some comments to make about the latest Irish economic data, and I know that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's more of the same in many ways, telling a story of a very strong labour market and inflation pressures. That topic again. There are other things going on that I want to talk about. I want to again reference some of the comments, uh, emails, and other communications that we've had from readers from our last few pods, and in particular the piece that you wrote for our Substack site on house prices and the way in which that's playing out, both politically and economically. We've got Joe Biden just before we came on air talking about how he thinks an invasion of Ukraine is looking increasingly likely and imminent. Stock markets are reacting exactly as you would think in that there's been a flight to quality and away from risk assets. So equity markets are down and US Treasury prices are up. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And if we've got time, I want to loop back to uh, that theme of inflation and house prices, but in a broader context because I know that I've sent you a piece about you um, comparing US and Irish and indeed many other countries' healthcare costs and prices. And I know that I surprised myself when I read this, and I know you were astonished as well. And it's a story about how expensive Ireland is in the round, something I think that most people are at least vaguely aware of. Um, but just how bad it is, particularly in the area of housing we've talked about and we'll talk about again today, but it does extend to many other areas. 
And I do want to talk about expensive Ireland, as I say, if we have time. But over to you, Jim, for the latest economic news from the Irish economy. Okay, Chris, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Feeling quite good myself this afternoon. This morning, I had my first live gig in front of a big audience in the Westbury Hotel for the Institute of Directors. Uh, It was a great feeling to have people out, to have a a full room again. Um, This afternoon, it is reported that the Chief Medical Officer is um, recommending the abandonment of, uh, or the winding up of NEFET, the National Public Health Emergency Team, and the lifting of most of the remaining restrictions. So uh, I guess what all that tells me is that uh, there is definitely a, an increasing feeling of normality, which I like. Uh, there's a sense we're getting back to normal. And I even being inside in Dublin city centre this morning, um, it's as busy as I've seen it in quite some time. So it's, it's great to see life returning to some semblance of normality. We had two important pieces of data out of Ireland today. One is the labour force survey. This is produced on a quarterly basis. And what it basically shows that in the year to the end of December 2021, there was an increase of 10.1% in employment. And we now have just over two and a half million people working in the country. That is the highest level of employment we've ever seen in this country. And even if you adjust for the fact that some of those classified as employed are actually employed because of COVID-related supports, the employment wage subsidy scheme and so on. But even if you adjust for that, there's still 2.44 million people working in the economy. So an incredibly strong labour market report. The unemployment rate based on the labour force survey data down at 4.9% of the labour force and the COVID adjusted rate is down at 7.4%. So these are incredibly strong labour force numbers, but there is nothing here that remotely surprises me, I have to say. Um, In the year to the end of 2021, there was an increase of 23,300 people working in construction, for example. There's now over 158,000 people in the construction sector. So it's, 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 it's getting back to close to record levels in that sector. Uh, there's clearly been a strong increase in accommodation and food services, up 37,000. But that really reflects the fact that, um, you know, the year-on-year comparison is exaggerated by COVID restrictions last year, particularly. And then uh, the one that's, I think, really reassuring is that the information and communication sector, that's ICT, there's an increase of over 28,000 in employment in that sector. So, you know, overall, it is an incredibly strong labour force support report, and it does continue to, you know, affirm this view that Ireland is once again a lean, green job creating machine. Um, incredibly good stuff. And I think, you know, you will have the usual suspects coming out saying that a lot of the, and I've seen it actually in the last week that an awful lot of the jobs we're creating here are sort of yellow pack jobs. They're zero hour contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is the evidence. There is not much evidence to support that. You know, a lot of the employment is being created in sectors where pay is high and where, you know, general conditions are good. And um, I, I, th- I think that's reassuring. But it, it also, of course, reflects something we've discussed, um, the exchequer returns, you know, the strong growth in income tax receipts is all indicative of 
the quality of employment or creating the economy. So unambiguously a good news story, uh, but it also does pose a massive challenge because during 2021, it was certainly the case for 2022, it is going to be more so the case that one of the big challenges for employers will be retention and recruitment of workers uh, because, okay, we hear about the mass resignation, but um, I don't kind of buy that mass resignation story. I think what we're seeing in the labour market is a, a lot of people changing jobs because of better pay, basically. Uh, they're bettering themselves. Um, it's it's not a sense of gi- giving up certain jobs because they're not happy. You know, I think this is a sort of a progressive uh, type development in the Irish labour market. Um, so it's 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 a good news story. But, you know, employment uh, or recruitment consultants tell me that they, the labour market is absolutely red hot at the moment. And um, uh, I, I guess it's really good news from an employee perspective. Um, obviously, not such good news for employers who, you know, will have to pay up higher wages to uh, retain and recruit workers. Uh, and also, of course, I think what feeds into this is that employers are going to have to be very, very flexible in terms of working arrangements. Um, So in other words, this sort of labour market report strengthens the view that employers will have to accommodate a hybrid working model and the type of hybrid working model will be largely dictated, I think, by employees rather than employers. Um, So that's it. Um, The other news story was on the inflation front we got the uh, consumer price index for january uh, the headline year-on-year rate fell from five and a half percent to five percent uh, but on a year-on-year comparison basis you know transport costs are up 14 percent that's reflecting diesel up 32 percent petrol up 29 and a half percent and and I've, I've heard people say that this increase in fuel costs is because of the carbon tax. The carbon tax is levied on the basis of the ton of carbon associated with um, fuels, okay? And it is 1.6 cent, regardless of um, what the price at the pump is. So it's not like VAT. It's not like Exactly. It's not like VAT. It's not a proportionate tax. It's a fixed tax. So to suggest that the increase in petrol and diesel prices is down to the carbon tax um, is not correct. And what's happening really is that um, on global energy markets, we've seen oil and gas prices rise dramatically over the last 12 months. And that's why we're getting in the main this sort of inflation. And if if government wants to address that, the simple way to do it is to um, take less excess duty out of it. Surely, one, surely the environmentalists amongst us, myself included, I would have thought, I would have said, uh, are describing what's happening to energy prices as exactly the same as a rise in the carbon tax, at least from that environmental point of view. The point of a carbon tax is to deter consumption and to encourage substitution into non-carbon sources. So the, the fact that the price of carbon is rising because of the it's it's rising on the world wholesale market for oil and gas rather than governments putting taxes on it doesn't really matter from that taxing carbon point of view 
you know, the price is going up, so consumption presumably will be deterred. Substitution will be encouraged. Chris, can I ask you, substitution into what? Wind, solar, and all the other things that we know are not there yet. Well, uh, that's it, exactly, <laughs> that are not there yet. And you, you try building a wind farm in this country and see how you get on. This is partly the point, isn't it? That, that if we are going to have substitution, we, we have to have something to substitute in. And on a day like today, and indeed a day like tomorrow, when we have, certainly in the UK at least, rolling storms of quite an incredible nature coming in, reminding us of the potential of climate change and what it can do. I don't know whether these are normal storms or not, but anyway, they are producing an awful lot of wind. And it's just a shame that we can't store all that energy, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. Ab- absolutely. So you, you would hope what's happening at the moment will really push the alternative energy agenda. Uh, and also, you know, you look at petrol, diesel, how do you substitute away from those? Well, you substitute towards EVs. But the, okay, and we are seeing a significant increase in the number of electric vehicles being registered here, but um, it's still a tiny proportion of the overall market. And the point is that, number one, EVs are still too expensive and will remain too expensive in the absence of government subsidies to encourage behavioural change. Secondly, the whole infrastructure for EVs is totally inadequate. So, you know, if you are going to impose carbon taxes and try and force people away from fossil fuels, well, you need to hell make sure that there are alternatives out there and the alternatives are just not adequate at the moment. So as a consequence, this spike in diesel and petrol prices is having a serious impact. The other part of the inflation picture, of course, it's related. It's the housing, water, electricity and gas component. Um, Electricity prices up 22.4%. Gas prices up 27.7%. Home heating oil just up by just over 50%. Um, rents are up 8.4%. And for the first time in a while, we see mortgage rates up 3.9%, okay, mortgage costs. So you can you can see what's happening there. Um, and the other final point on the inflation driver today, in the year to the end of January, alcoholic beverages and tobacco up 8.7%. But on a month-on-month basis between December and January, alcoholic beverage prices increased by 17.4%. I believe that's the largest ever monthly increase in alcohol prices. And it is down to the introduction of minimum unit pricing of alcohol in January. And from the perspective of government, um, it's kind of ironic that after a number of years discussing and trying to get the legislation through on minimum unit pricing, it gets introduced at a time when general inflation in the economy is spiking at a dramatic pace. So it just exacerbates that problem. And Jim, I... I've got some bad news for you. If you think that that's bad for booze prices, the chief executive, I think, of Heineken this week said that in his entire career, he's never seen inflation like it. And the headline on the FT's website today is the, a, scare, a scary headline about imminent rises in beer prices in British pubs. So what happens here happens in Ireland eventually. And all of the big beer producers are talking about rises in input costs, both of materials and labour, and talking about maybe 25p on a pint imminently, uh, which, which is pretty chunky for us boozers, isn't it? 
So, Chris, are you telling me I should get on to go online to Dungarvan Brewery and order some Dungarvan craft beer? I would be stocking up on all sorts of things, but not least beer. But then I would, I always do. So, but so yeah, there's a there's a lot of incipient inflation in in, in the pipeline. Just to I guess wrap up on my piece on today's numbers, five um, percent year on year increase, and they give the contribution to that five percent that different segments make. And housing, water, electricity, and gas contributes one point nine five percent. Transport one point eight percent, and alcoholic beverages and tobacco zero point five percent. The one area that is making very little contribution to inflation. And this flies in the face of this popular narrative we've seen out here in recent weeks about dramatic increases in the cost of grocery shopping. Um, Food prices in January actually declined by 0.1% on December. And on a year-on-year basis, food prices are up by just 2%. And that is primarily driven by bread is up 7%, pasta for some reason, is up 6.9%. But for poor pig farmers, pork prices are down 1.8%. Vegetable costs are up 1%. Fruit is up 0.6%. So what I'm really trying to say here, and and this is me in defense of the primary producer, the farmer, or the horticulture farmer, whatever type of primary producer we're talking about in the food sector, there is still a distinct absence of any significant inflation in the food sector and that is despite the fact that the input costs to agriculture have increased dramatically over the last 12 months with oil and energy the big contributor there isn't the point though jim that for many years food prices in ireland have been falling they and have the fact, indeed yeah the fact that they're now rising albeit by small amounts is a big change facing irish shoppers and of course the story behind those falling prices um, is quite interesting I remember when I first arrived in Ireland in the 1980s, I found the prices of food in the shops relative to the UK quite shocking, actually, and quickly was able to see that the reason for that, that there was no retail competition and that one of the big contributors to falling grocery prices in recent years has been the, has been the arrival of the discounters. Would you accept that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, do, do you remember Tesco used to call Ireland Treasure Island? Treasure Island, of, that's correct. Because of the profit margins yeah. available to Tesco, which are, I suspect, no longer available thanks to the Aldis and Lidls. Yeah, point. I mean, basically over the last 10 years, and I haven't got the figures quite off the top of my head, but basically Aldi and Lidl's market share has grown from under 5% to, I think, around 24% at the moment. So if you track, which I do, I... Tr- and I know correlation isn't causation, okay, but I track the market share of the discounters against food prices. And it is clear to me that the price compression in the retail sector um, is being driven by uh, the growth of the discounters. So you might say, isn't this great, you know, from a consumer perspective, cheaper food, good news. But I think you have to look at it in the round and it's the farmer coming out in me here, okay, Um, If you are a primary producer of food, you're facing significant increases in input costs. Um, The price that you're getting for your product is under pressure because of this retail price compression. Um, And something has to give in the end. And I think that something is that um, a lot of primary food producers will be forced out of business. And perhaps that's something that the Irish consumer is willing to accept. Uh, It doesn't make me feel very comfortable, I have to say. 
uh, because I think it's good to have a strong primary agricultural production sector in a country like Ireland. Um, I also think the notion that we import all of our fruit and vegetables and other food products uh, just doesn't make sense from an economic or an environmental perspective. Yeah, uh, it's, but, it's hard but to that's the reality. Yeah. Um, and just to illustrate how the debate sometimes goes over here, um, you know that we just did a free t trade deal with Australia that was quite bad for farmers. Speaking to your point about the impacts on agriculture, there was a tiny, tiny lost in the rounding impact on GDP. But although it's small in the context of GDP, it was quite large over the long term um, for farmers, particularly um hill that sheep farming and, and and i think some dairy as well one prominent brexiteering economist has come out this week and said well the way to to make that gdp effect even bigger effectively in this paper that this this eccentric economist said effectively as far as i could understand his reasoning was that contrary to your argument about the importance of a domestic agricultural sector britain should do away with it it's and import all its stuff from agricultural foodstuffs from places like Australia, and Australia in particular. Quite incredible stuff, really. So a very different perspective, but that, that's the country that I, I, I live in. One of the things that I wanted to talk about coming out of that, Jim, is that you've talked about a story of a, an amazing success story that is the Irish economy. And that goes back a number of years now. We've had very many ups and downs in terms of all that, beginning with the roots of the Celtic tiger and all that, those, those horrible labels. Um, but we're talking about an economy that, is, that, with problems and with issues that we've talked about a lot, uh, is incredibly successful, at least from an employment point of view, from a, an attractiveness to live point of view. It's one of the nicest places in the world to live. Quality of life is fantastic compared to, to many countries. It's also one of the most expensive places in the world to live. According to surveys, it's always up there at the top of cost uh, league tables. Ireland is expensive on a whole range of measures. We talk about the cost of housing a lot. That clearly is the issue of the moment. You can see that in terms of the popular media. You can see that in terms of our own Substack website, where we get a plethora of comments, questions, arguments uh, about the housing issue. And everybody kind of sort of knows just how expensive Ireland is. And I'm going to come on to one particular measure of uh, how expensive it is in a second that I think is jaw dropping. But you talked earlier on in a different context about correlation and causation. Do you think that there is just a correlation between how wonderful a place Ireland is in terms of the success of its economy, um, its attractiveness as, as a location to live, and those costs? Do you think that one is linked to the other in any way? Or do you think that it's coincidence? Do you think that Ireland's economic success is driving up its costs? Or do you think that those costs now threaten Ireland's economic success, or that there's no connection? Or is that a very unfair question to throw at you? Uh, no, it's, it's not. And I'm not sure I can give you a direct answer. But I, I will say this, and this is something that I've spoken about over the last couple of weeks in different fora. Uh, there's obviously a lot of discussion here about cost of living pressures, okay? Um, but I think you cannot divorce what's happening on the inflation front from the cost of doing business in this country. And every year, the National Competitiveness Council uh, publishes a report on competitiveness indicators. It looks at a range of costs of doing business and compares those with a number of peer countries, mainly in the European Union. Okay, 
And what it always shows is that in an awful lot of cost of business categories, Ireland is well up there, close to the top of the league. Uh, You look at broadband costs, you look at telecommunications, you look at professional fees as in legal accounting and so on. You know, Ireland is an incredibly expensive country in which to do business. And of course, if a country is an expensive location in which to do business, automatically that is going to feed through to the general cost of living that we as consumers face. So the question then is, is that high cost of doing business, is that a reflection on the success of our economy? Or is it a reflection of um, rent seeking in certain sectors of the economy? Or both. Um, Or both, yeah, absolutely. And the interesting question for me, well, there are many interesting questions that flow from that. But why have the professions in particular been so successful in driving up their fees? Yeah. How, How do they pull it off? Year after year. Uh, there, there is an old joke about a dog, which I'm not going to tell on this podcast. But I think uh, the some of the professionals get away with this because they can. You pointed out to me today a report from the OECD on healthcare prices. Um, I was coming on to that. You're coming on to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you talk about it. But um, th- this is quite extraordinary. And these healthcare costs that you're going to talk about are not being driven by nurses' pay. No. You know, you'd have yeah. to say that the consultants hold an incredibly powerful position in our society, in our health system. The legal profession holds a very powerful position um, in the in the overall system. So there's, there's lots of reasons why these professional costs are so high in this country. But basically, uh, a lot of the professions have an incredibly powerful position in Irish society. And they charge higher prices because they can. Yeah. And the, the interesting question is why the political system has allowed them to get away with it. Because the, we're talking here that is a classic economic problem, which is vested interests essentially exercising monopoly-like powers or monopolistic-type powers to extract what we economists call economic rents and more normal people would, would call price gouging. And if ever you've had to engage the services of a lawyer recently, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, It's also true, of course, that these professions are expensive in many other countries, but it does seem that they are particularly expensive in Ireland. I think one of the temptations at this point politically for many people, and this speaks to the zeitgeist about the way in which people are giving up on Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael ever being able to tackle any of this and moving on to Sinn Féin, is that it's somehow deterministic that somebody somewhere once upon a time decided that this was the way it's going to be. And people often misunderstand how an awful lot of economic outcomes, not just economic ones, societal outcomes in general, are as the result of emergent processes. That It's just something that happens as a result of many other things, none of which is under anybody's control. There's no conspiracy theorist. There's no group of people sitting at the center of power, pulling these levers, pushing these buttons and saying, this is what we want to happen. Um, Duncan Weldon wrote a book about the UK economy recently in which he emphasized the nature of path dependency. It kind of, it really often depends on where you start from. Where you start from is critical. And then the path that you take can be uh, accidental, coincidental, serendipitous, all of those words. And you end up in a place that nobody, nobody, not even Fina Gale, would have ever designed. 
that just is what it is. But you have to understand where you are and then maybe do something about it. But we all know about Ireland's costs. And um, I did interrupt you and I apologize for that because you're about to talk about health. You're just as entitled to talk about it as me. It's an OECD report. There's not that recent, actually. But when I came across it the other day, it was jaw dropping. And I teased you before we came on air about the um, cost of health in places like Switzerland, the United States, and indeed every single OECD country, and asked you where you thought uh, the price of healthcare was at its highest globally. And I think you gave the answer that everybody, that I certainly would have given, and that it's the United States. And that's almost right. The United States is almost the most expensive place in the world for healthcare. It's the most expensive place is actually Switzerland, which when you think about it, perhaps isn't that, that surprising. But what is absolutely astonishing about this report is where Ireland figures in that league table of costs of healthcare, And it's almost exactly the same as the United States. I find that extraordinary. And uh, I didn't expect it and would need to dig down into the data to try and figure out why it is happening. But it is part of this bigger picture that I'm building, that Ireland is an incredibly expensive place to do business for all sorts of reasons. And those reasons have got to include the failure to tackle vested interests across the provision of professional services in particular. But one, for the sake of balance, must also throw in things like um, the activities of some trade unions, for example. Um, Public sector costs in Ireland are quite high, relatively speaking, as well. And, And one must throw everything into the mix, to be fair, to be balanced. The welfare system in Ireland gets a lot of stick and a lot of social justice campaigners probably quite rightly always campaign for uh, their members and the more vulnerable in society. But the brutal fact of the data is that Ireland is a relatively generous place when it comes to welfare payments, certainly relative to the UK. You may argue that that's not a difficult comparison, but um, certainly if if you're going to be unemployed in Ireland, and clearly not many people are these days, um, you bet you're better off being unemployed in Ireland than, than you are in the UK from a from a benefits standpoint. So Ireland is a very expensive place to do business. And uh, whether or not you think that that's been driven by a combination of vested interests, a combination of that plus economic success, because economic success, if it if it's unbridled, if it's an economic boom, And I think you are describing an economic boom in Ireland at the moment. And that can drive up costs, which ultimately sow the seeds of the demise of that boom. These costs must now, therefore, be an economic threat. But we also know them to be a political threat as well, because what has happened, and you can see that on on all of the comments that we're getting on our website, is that people are saying that these issues, this high cost problem led by housing, but it's much more widespread than perhaps many people, us included, realise, is driving people away from established political parties. People are saying, let's give Sinn Féin a go. I asked you a question again offline earlier about whether or not the established political parties themselves have given up. And I said to you, um, has Fine Gael in particular given up on the idea that the next election is winnable? And it's, it's almost inevitable now that it's Sinn Féin's turn. And what was your answer? I really think um, Fine Gael have given up, OK? They, they don't believe they can be part of the next government. I could be totally wrong now. I have nothing to do with the party, uh, but that, that would be my perception. What, what, what I see happening in Fine Gael is that 
you know, Fine Gael sort of traditionally would be a slightly right of centre economically and slightly left of centre socially. Uh, and I guess from my personal perspective, that combination sort of appeals to me. OK, but if you look at the way Fine Gael has behaved in recent years, um, I, I think it is, you know, it, it has started to play, try to play the populist game. You know, it has basically moved away from its own support base, trying to attract votes from people who will never vote Fine Gael anyway. And as a consequence, the party is now falling between two stools. So, you know, unless there is a concerted effort after the next election from a number of political parties to keep Sinn Féin out of power, um, you know, I, I think people in Fine Gael would find it hard to believe that they could form part of the next government. And that brings us to Fianna Fáil. Um, my view is that perhaps not the current leadership of Fianna Fáil, but I think there are many in Fianna Fáil who would jump straight into bed with Sinn Féin in government in the morning. Okay. okay, so... Do you think that the point made by several of the commenters and discussants on our site, that Fianna Gael is in some way responsible for protecting the interests of the professions of the middle and upper middle classes in Ireland, and that this cost problem that I referred to across the legal accountancy and medical professions is somehow the fault of Fine Gael, as some of our commenters clearly seem to think. Well, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it, it doesn't strike me that Fine Gael is doing much in terms of its policy platform that is actually um, protecting uh, th- those professions, at least on a day-to-day policy basis. Okay, you know, the personal tax burden is pretty high here. So that sort of flies in the face of that. But I guess what, what we're, we're not seeing um, is that that there is no attempt to sort of deregulate the professions and how they behave. And um, maybe that's, that is a failure of governments consistently. Um, I think it is a failure of permanent government to do anything about it. Um, but it, it, even if you look within the health service, um, you know, I, I said that this cost of health is not because of what nurses are paid. It's not, in my view, it's not because of what GPs are earning in this country. And in fact, that is now one of the biggest crises in our health system here. Uh, there's a lot of GPs retiring. They are not being replaced. And um, as a consequence of that, that there is a, a massive gap here in the primary health service. And of course, if you don't have a primary health service, a lot of those people end up presenting at A&E and clogging up the hospital system, leading to the long waiting lists and so on. Um, whether you, you could blame or accuse Fine Gael of actively protecting these professions or not, I, I, I actually don't know. I think um, it's, a, it's a sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. It's the absence yeah. of doing anything about it over yeah. multiple years. Multiple governments have allowed this situation to gradually develop to the point where these professions have, at the moment, it looks to me to be unassailable power because to take them on, I think, would use up an enormous amount of political capital. And I wonder whether any they are so powerful now, whether anybody could take them on. Good luck to anybody that does try because they really have created a citadel, um, a walled citadel, 
and it's almost impossible at the moment, um, quite clearly, to knock these walls down. Of course, this is not a peculiarly, uniquely Irish phenomenon. This is true in many countries, but it just seems to be particularly true in Ireland. And I think if anybody is going to tackle this, they really do have a job on their hands, don't they? Yeah, I I remember, Chris, um, back in sort of 2009-10, just after the financial crash, when the whole fiscal austerity thing was being implemented here, um, every year, I for a number of years, I went to Killarney at Easter and spoke at the annual conference of the IMO. Fergal Bowers, uh, the RT health correspondent, um, often picked me, picked me up in Killarney asking me to do a piece for TV or whatever uh, because I was one of the few non-medical people down there to sort of give a view on whatever the topic of the conference was. And I was on the way to Killarney to speak at the conference in the evening and on the one o'clock news on the radio there was a a statement from the consultants that they would not accept austerity cuts uh, full stop so Fergal Bowers nabbed me just before I spoke um, and I I said on RT TV news a soundbite and unfortunately it was only a soundbite was played rather than the whole interview but Uh, I basically said that why should the consultants be any different than anybody else in Irish society at the moment? Everybody is taking a serious hit at the minute from fiscal austerity. So why should they be different? So that appeared at six o'clock. I stood up to speak at half six. I was greeted by a stony silence. Funny enough, that was the last IMO conference I've spoken at. I don't think we're going to get many consultancy gigs from uh, the accountant legal or medical professions no i i I don't know chris i mean it's 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 worth kicking these things around okay yeah because the 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 one thing i think we do need to do a bit of work on somebody is to try and understand why the cost of living in this country is so high and as i say i think a lot of it does buy back to the cost of doing business here on a range of different fronts so yeah. And the answer, we know what the answer is going to be, Jim, when we do that work. And we, we probably should do that work, if only for the fun of it, to make sure that we don't actually work ever again, at least in paid employment. Um, because we know that it's going to come down to a conclusion that those that have the most power make the most money. Yeah. On that note, I think we should probably call it for today, Jim. And uh, thanks for an- again for another great discussion and speak to you next time. Great, Chris. Talk to you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.